They say there is a flash of mercy concealed in your face folds. If only a person has time to swim down and find it. This is the Poetry Magazine podcast. I'm Lindsay Garbett, Managing Editor of Poetry. Alice Oswald's newest book, Nobody, is a series of water stories drawing from the Odyssey and other Greek myths. This week, we bring you poet Kit Fan, who wrote an essay about Nobody for the magazine, speaking with Alice Oswald. Here's Fan and Oswald on the erosion of stories, grammar that perpetually creates itself, finding new gods after every publication, and what color the Odyssey would be if it were a color. First thing I want to ask is, where are you, Alice? (laughs) I'm in Bristol. This is my new personality. In fact, nobody was written in Devon, but I'm now living in Bristol. So do you think you would have written nobody differently now that you've written and now you moved to Bristol? Oh, yes. I mean, I, I think after every book, I completely change my entire personality, all my gods, everything. So in a sense, that would be true. Even if I were still living in Devon, I still wouldn't. You know, at this stage in my life, I wouldn't write nobody again. I could strongly feel that actually. One, I think one of the reasons I, I love your books, I, I say books, because I think each of your books have a really strong sense of the multifaceted personalities that you have as a poet. Um, but for this particular book, there is a strong sense of resistance to be grasped or deciphered. That's how I, I feel it. I read it and I was very struck by it, but I found it almost quite difficult to understand what's happening. And it forced me to do a lot of rereading. And I wonder if you can say something about that. Well, I'm really grateful that there are readers like you, Kit, because <laughs> I do feel kind of that poem is unfair. It sets out really to drown the reader. I wanted it not to feel like a sort of intellectual exercise where you would emerge kind of clarified and simplified but literally to be as if you were inhaling water. And one of the things I was interested in was whether you could construct a grammar that would in some way kind of cheat the reader of meaning so that not that you're trying to be nonsensical, but simply that the grammar itself is still alive so that rather than a whole sentence being complete before you speak it, it kind of grows as it's being spoken, which is something I think you see in Homer that he will sometimes... Mm set out with one construction and then change his mind while speaking and and move into saying something different. So it's as if every phrase, not every word, but every phrase has to be in its own present moment. But that's a huge amount to ask from a reader, unless I find the people who I think get most out of it are those who don't expect it to be conveying a thought, but expect it to be more like the experience of being outdoors, where you simply are assaulted by all kinds of different tunes and beings. I love what you said about inhaling water. And I thought as I was reading it, I could definitely smell the water. But what struck me most, actually, I felt like I was seeing water. There are fishing. There are sheer waters searching. And sometimes in these gulfs, a goddess who used to be human, now she is yellow-eyed. Sometimes she shrieks heavy winged with laughterless laughter, and lands on his raft, shaking the underworld off. Poor man, she says. Poor man, it's obvious. You can sniff it everywhere. The shabby weirdness of the sea god leaning intimately over and turning his shadows against you. 
there are moments of kind of hyper real, surreal, but also supernatural moments in there. And as I explain in my in my essay, that the book has a kind of early incarnation, which is to do with a, a collaboration you did with a watercolor artist. And and can you say something about the kind of different incarnations of this book? Yeah, I think it's quite important to feel that it's a collaboration with an artist because it's often seemed to me that what goes on in the art world is just far more exciting in a way than what goes on in the poetry world. You know, people just, they expect to be subjected to experiment and uh, incoherence and all kinds of things, you know, not not even necessarily kind of abstract expressionism or anything like that, but even Turner, for example, if you imagine his paintings of the sea, they are just dazzling onslaughts of light. And I think we kind of accept that artists do that, but so often poetry has to be very, sort of, it has to deal with meaning and it should deal with meaning, but it doesn't seem to be allowed so often to push it to the very edge. So I was quite excited to work with an abstract artist and I watched quite carefully his way of making these watercolors where he would do a lot of preparation and then he would allow the water to express itself onto the page. So he would build sort of baffles and dams on the paper and then he would just let the water do its own thing and the colors would spread in their own ways. And that actually already was quite similar to how I work anyway, where I like to try and build a framework and then let whatever I'm writing about do its speak for itself. Um, so I was very much kind of following that method and sort of watching what my mind did if I kind of dropped an idea in and let it blot rather in the same way that those colours blot on his pages. I was just thinking about the balance between that sense of chance, you drop a water on the page, but at the same time you have to balance it with the constraint of the page and the constraint of poetic form. So I wonder what do you see when you see a page in Nobody? Well, I've worked quite a lot with how the pages should look with a typographer. And I was quite happy that he almost pushed the book into feeling like each page was a separate poem. And that wasn't necessarily how I conceived it at first. But as we made some mock-ups quite early on, I began to sort of consider the poem as if each unit could be in some way self-contained. So to me, the pages feel like surges of sound. The verses are much more paragraphy than I've used normally in my poetic forms. I normally have kind of threads of tune with large spaces. And here I let the voices kind of drift almost like waves, I suppose. So that's what the pages feel like to me, kind of these surges and sweeps of sound. Really. I think you almost explained what I was going to ask you about, because I, I found the movement from page to page very evocative, but also kind of destabilizing sometimes. So I, I'm just interested in how you move from one page to the next in the book. I did a lot of this poem on huge sheets of paper with colors. And, you know, I actually started by sensing my way into each section, first with colors, then with forms and lines. So I was really using uh, visual images to find my way into the poem. And 
the words would kind of spread out of that visual image. And you don't see any of that in the book, but it sort of took me into bits of my mind that I hadn't explored before. So that was quite interesting to me. So perhaps each double spread is a unit rather than each individual page. And I think they do represent different visions, perhaps. And those visions would, would mostly have, have been images that I actually would have put down on paper. Well, speaking of colours, because I've never experienced such kind of onslaught of colours in a book of poems. <laughs> it was just the kind of fireworks of different shimmering of colours, and they are so mesmerising, but also disturbing in many cases. It's so it's fascinating when you said that actually you're linking the different medium of creativity together when you're writing the poem, and, and the connection with the drawings and the words and and the removal of of those things when we see it on a book and uh, but what color or colors came to your mind when you first started writing the book well i always feel that the odyssey is a very bright emerald green because it has this incredible sort of uh, vegetative life in it it's it's like a plant that is just cannot stop growing you know the sentences grow all over the place so even though it's a poem about the sea I actually feel that kind of bright green of spring leaves in it but I mean I did kind of quite quite terrifying things to my mind when I was writing this poem because I got quite interested in theories of colour and sort of trying to watch what my mind was doing particularly looking at colours in water and how your mind will tell you that's green because you know it's a leaf but actually when you look at it it's not because it's in a black river. And so just trying to notice what the mind does and try, as I'm always trying to get away from my own mind and out into the world, I was trying to see what colours are beyond my mind. And I think they probably don't exist beyond the mind. So it was actually an experience of almost unsettling all my, all my perceptions, really. Yeah. And I also, I was interested in using colour as, I mean, I'm very interested in how healers, for example, use colour to sort of detect what people are thinking. And I would sort of try out exercises of just associating colours with, you know, when people were speaking, I'd just try and think, okay, what colour is that? Or, so I, I was using colour throughout my time of writing the poem as a way of understanding the world. Since we're talking about colours, and I thought it would be a useful introduction to your colourful poem. I wonder if you could read a section or page in the poems. Um, I mean, I'm thinking about page 23. That's with This is One Kind of Water. Okay, yeah, I'd love to. This is one kind of water. When it hangs over him, a man is a nobody underneath a big wave. His loneliness expands, his hair floats out like seaweed. And when he surfaces, his head full of green water, sitting alone on his raft in the middle of death, then it is wide. It is a wide field of horrible upheavals. There are fish in it. There are shearwaters searching. And sometimes in these gulfs, a goddess who used to be human, now she is yellow-eyed. Sometimes she shrieks, heavy-winged with laughterless laughter, and lands on his raft, shaking the underworld off. Poor man, she says. Poor man, it's obvious. You can sniff it everywhere. The shabby weirdness of the sea god leaning intimately over and turning his shadows against you. 
poor morsel of cork you bob about throw away in all this what is it grief 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 but this grief is so old its matter has lost its mind blinks blinks and sees nothing howls howls and hears nothing thank you alice you talked about the mind I mean, I was fascinated by what you said about the mind and perception and your, your venture into color theory. And actually the mind and thoughts focus so, it looms so largely in the book. And, and the poem actually starts with, as the mind flutters in a man who has traveled widely. Given there are cast of characters, mythical figures in a book, the mind for me seems to become a kind of unifying voice in the poem. But on one hand, it seems very simple because we all have the mind with us. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's probably the most abstract and daring voice one can evoke to a poem. And I wonder how you manage to deal with the mind and thoughts throughout the book. Well, as you know, I'm quite fascinated, even obsessed, you might say, with Homer. And one of the things that really tantalizes me in Homer is, is what is the Homeric mind, because I think it's very different from a literary mind. And it seems not to be inside the skull, but to be out in the world. So there is a particular simile in the Iliad, which actually the, that first bit of the poem is based on, where it talks about two goddesses coming from heaven to the earth, and they're very physically described. They kind of fall down from heaven to the earth. And then when they land, they take little pigeon steps, steps like doves or pigeons. So you can really picture them. But the way their flight moves from heaven to earth is as a man, you know, as, as the mind flutters in a man who has traveled widely. Mm. So you can turn it the other way around and say the way a man thinks is like this incredibly physical flight of two goddesses coming down to earth a bit like pigeons. And that's always really interested me that for Homer, the mind has the limitations of a pigeon, if you like. It is this kind of, this physical thing that moves. So if you imagine a place over the sea, your mind actually has to get there. So even though it may be as fast as light, it is physical movement. And that's one of the things that, that I can never quite understand in Homer is that the mind is, is physically in the world and thought has to actually move it has to kind of get through atoms it has to surge between people it, you know words have wings so i don't think we should take it for granted that we're right about what the mind is that it's this whatever it might be electricity inside the skull uh, and this other vision of a mind that is almost an insect hmm. really interests me uh, I know your interest in Homer and and your and one of your previous collections called Memorial when you when you evoked the war dead and you name the names and the names carry the personal history and but when I was reading nobody you mean you contextualized it with a clear introduction of this episode in the Odyssey when a poet was taken to the desert island and left there as a lump of food for the birds, um, but the characters and the voices of the Odyssey and other Greek myths are not 
clearly referenced in nobody. And, and there is a sense that the mind is anonymous or something important is being anonymized. And, and that sense of anonymity somehow echoed or reinforced by the visibility and invisibility throughout the book. And I wonder, can, you can say something about anonymity in nobody. One of the images that was quite strong in my head was of those ancient Cycladic sculptures. Do you know the ones I mean that are just as simple as you can possibly imagine because they've been eroded away and also I think they were simple in the first place. So just these white sort of triangle based people with, you know, one line across the middle and, you know, beautiful round or triangular face. And that feeling of characters who have been eroded by the weather and by the sea is really what I'm feeling in this poem. It's, it's a poem that just opens itself to the elements and gets kind of washed. It gets its features washed off. So it's kind of wind driven. You know, the, the swerves in the language are not necessarily my decisions. They're the kind of things it's like a weather vane, you know, it's always kind of spinning according to something outside itself. And in the same way, the characters have sort of lost everything that we would recognize them by as if they've spent 2000 years underwater. But how does this sense of the erosion or the weathering of the seas uh, does to narrative? Because there's tr there, are, there, there is definitely narrative in the book where as, as, as you read, you feel voice, distinctive voices evoking their story. And, and of course, we have the Greek myths kind of haunting in the background. So, so how, how, what do you think the tension between that sort of erosion and narrative happening in the book? Well, the same thing has happened to the stories, you know, those, those stories that have all their kind of patterns and details in the first place, they, they've had all that, you know, mostly the stories get interrupted in this poem. So they start out and then they're interrupted by another story. So I suppose one image was of this poet who is mentioned in the Odyssey, who is placed to the side of the narrative. So whatever stories he hears left on his rock are going to be partial. They're, they're going to be sort of windblown and drowned out by the sea. So there is the feeling that any story that begins isn't going to be allowed to resolve itself. And that's almost an aesthetic decision, I think. it's. Mm. I'm I'm interested. I mean, the kind of music I like is I love music that kind of doesn't get anywhere. Uh, so these stories don't get anywhere. They're all stuck. Um, and I like sort of, you know, Celtic patterns that just go on and on doing the same thing. So that I didn't want to make a poem that got anywhere, really. I wanted a poem that was stuck, whose stories couldn't quite move forward, that had simply been tossed about by the weather, really. Alice, since you talked about insect, how the mind of the insect. And I wonder if you could read a page on, from Nobody, starting with terrified of insects of noon and sun of sunlight. It's page 36. Mm. Terrified of insects of noon of sunlight, when the sea dilates to let more green in, and the damaged undermost in all its clefts can be seen. When swallows free themselves of their sorrows, and seagulls hang themselves on invisible armatures, and only a few tiny, almost magical flashes of light fall in the form of rain and stop. 
those lovers lurk in their indoors wondering can he hear us now that poet has he finished his poem about us what kind of a sting in the ending will he sing of the husband if he is in fact on his way here knowing by now the craggy outjut of that shallow place where the seals bob about like footballs and did you hear along the shore that chorus of trees with seaweed hung from their twigs like wet in tissue being moved by what a heartfelt sigh the wind is and have you noticed the way the radius of water maintains itself in proportion to its circles as if each raindrip made a momentary calculation and when it stops there are ruled flat lines running from one island metrically to another how does it start the sea has endless beginnings i absolutely love this section in the poem Good. I think it's. Um, <laughs> I was really struck by. You talk about grammar, but I actually want to talk about mathematics and geometry first, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> because I think not my strong point. Well, I feel like <laughs> there's a lot of maths and and geometry in the poem. And actually, having read the poem, sometimes I I'm doing those kind of mental graphic imaginings of of the radius of water maintains itself in proportion to its circles. And it actually got me started reading a biography of Pythagoras. Oh, wow. I always liked Pythagoras. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and you talk about triangle a lot in the poem. I think there's, at the beginning, you, you talk about a cold mathematical power you have not heard. And you also mentioned triangle. So there's so many geometry and maps in the, in the poem. And why? I think that's all part of the erosion, really. It's like even the forms of visible things have been almost worn down to their abstract shapes. But also, and this may again be an effect of thinking about the project with an artist, I was just thinking an awful lot about light and vision and the way, well, light as an insect, really, which is not just Homer, it's also Dante. I've always loved this part of Dante where he talks about the, the spirity visivi, I think they're called. And this idea that when you look at things, what's happening is these kind of, you know, these creatures are sort of moving out from your eye to the world and moving from the world back into your eye. I was trying to sort of slow down my senses while I wrote this poem and imagine even the sort of passage between myself and the world was a, a creature, a living creature of some kind, which doesn't perhaps suggest maths to you, but it meant that I was looking at the kind of the lines of the senses quite a lot. And how does it link to, to the unpunctuation and the kind of spatial representation on the page? I mean, I couldn't find punctuation in this version of the Nobody, but I think in the watercolor version of Nobody, there is one punctuation? Or I think there's a, is there a dot, uh, dot, dot in that one? Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so what prompted you to think about a kind of Gertrude Stein <laughs> world of no punctuation. I've always thought that in poetry to have no punctuation is makes for more punctuation because it means you you really notice the kind of joints and pauses between phrases because you have to. Whereas I sometimes think that if you put in the punctuation, people will read poems more like novels. Uh, they will kind of be searching for the sense rather than hearing the sound of the grammar. And I am more and more interested in the fact that grammar, which sounds like a boring, pedantic, pedantic thing, is 
really what a poet's vision is. Mm. You know, the way you construct a sentence is the hierarchy that you see in the world. You know, if you if you have a main clause and a main verb and a you know everything depends on each other, then you're seeing a sort of a world of causes and effects. If a bit like Homer, you just have these sentences, these phrases that build in rows, always joined with an and, then you see a different kind of world altogether. And that, the grammar itself manifests as a tune. So any poet's melody is actually the same as how they're seeing the world, really. And I think that you don't begin to get that feeling of what grammar is doing unless you sort of take the props away, take the punctuation away. I think that's fascinating. But how does it work with, because when I read the poem, I feel like there is change of gear, not only between the lines, but also within the line. How does the line works for you in the world of no punctuation? Well, the line is always, as in any poem, it is the hesitation, isn't it? It's the, it's the turning point. And you will often, as you say, you'll have a caesura sometimes in the middle of a line where you do another swivel or turn. So I suppose just as with a speaking voice, every time a voice hesitates, it turns around and kind of readdresses a subject. So with a poem, as it gets to those joints, those hinges, it kind of takes a fresh look. I wouldn't want to say that it's a moment of thought because I don't think poems should get too tangled up in thought. I think they're meant to faint and collapse and sort of fling themselves into their subjects. <laughs> but it is certainly a moment, a moment of kind of re-looking. So the line end is a moment where you just look again, I think. I wonder if you could read uh, a page from Nobody. Uh, it's page 39, starting with, there is a harbour. There is a harbour where an old sea god sometimes surfaces. Two cliffs keep out the wind. You need no anchor. The water, in fascinated horror, holds your boat. At the far end, a thin-leaved olive casts a kind of evening over a cave, which is water's house where it leads its double life. There are four stone bowls and four stone jars, and the bees of their own accord leave honey there. Salt shapes hang from the roof like giant looms where the tide weaves leathery sea nets. Be amazed by that colour. It is the mind's inmost madness. But the sea itself has no character. Just this horrible thirst goes on creeping over the stones and shrinking away. Thank you, Alice. I was very heartened when you talk about the erosion and the watering the sea and the sense of stripping away. But at the same time, what's holding the poem together, I feel like, as a reader, is there's a wave of feelings. Uh, often complicated feelings, difficult feelings, to do with loss, rage, in this section just re uh, read madness, the sense of madness, and horror. <laughs> I just, I'm just interested in how you map or unmap some of these feelings from, from the myths throughout the poem. Well, I suppose there's quite a simple answer to that, which is the poem is very much a kind of strange reading of the Odyssey. The Odyssey I see as a beautifully patterned wedding hymn about Odysseus's marriage to Penelope and how they are driven apart by the Trojan War and they come back together. 
But embedded in that story, you've got the opposite story, which is the wedding of Agamemnon, who goes off to the same war and comes back and is murdered by his wife, who's taken a lover. And it's that reverse odyssey that I was writing in this poem, partly because the poet who's abandoned on the island is part of Agamemnon's household. So from his point of view, the Odyssey is being seen differently from that other much darker story. Hmm. So the story of Agamemnon is the one that is kind of running through this poem. Clytemnestra is the woman who is endlessly hearing the sea, worrying about whether her husband is coming home. That myth is perhaps the strongest thread in the poem and the one that it keeps coming back to that, as you say, does give rise to images of horror and murder and adultery. The poem hinges a lot on the figure of the poet in the Odyssey. And you also, the poet reoccurs throughout the poem. What's the relationship between the poet in Nobody and you imagining yourself as the poet? Well, I like very much the way within an oral tradition, whenever somebody speaks a poem, they are the same poet. So the rhapsodes who recited the Odyssey became Homer when they recited it. So I like to think that in writing this poem, I could become the nobody left on that island and he could become me. We were interchangeable. In a sense, the speaking of a poem takes you out of your material self and you kind of join the chorus of voices that has spoken that poem. So that poet left on an island is is one of a whole chorus of oral poets who were singing the homecoming of the Greeks from the Battle of Troy. And I was joining his voice, I suppose. Mm. And it's very similar, I think, to what folk singers talk about. They say that, you know, if they sing a song right, it's not just them singing. It's, it's anyone else who's ever sung that song is, is present when they sing it. And I really always like that idea that a poet isn't an individual. I know since the Romantics, we think that you have to be a, a passionate individual to be a poet. But I, I like the idea that you just join onto a tradition and you speak as one of the voices in that tradition. Well, speaking of the sense of the chorus, I wonder if you could read page 48, starting with only night birds eating insects. I love this section, by the way. It, actually, I wrote this quite a long time ago now. <laughs> it's funny to think. Really? How long? <laughs> well, more than two years ago. So, so it, it already feels eroded to me. <laughs> Only night birds eating insects, whirring and dialing in the small hours, expressing no emotion, only existence, always laughing and screaming the same fact stacked on every twig. Not every sound is a voice, not every breath is a self, but anything knocked by a sudden blow has the same unspecified shrillness. Oh, I feel like a glued fly, giving up and standing up, and time and again stuck in the same pain. If only my foot could move my thought and think of a cure, but my thoughts can't lift their wings, and every struggle tangles me lower. I wish I was there or there. Thank you, Alice. Why do you say that two years is a long time and it's already been eroded? Well, they've been two quite full years for me anyway. And I suppose there are times in your life where you, you know, things change more than at other times. I mean, I, I try to change myself every year. So 
two of those is is a lot. <laughs> uh, you know, I I take New Year's Eve very seriously because that seems to me that the best way to kind of to keep re-engaging with the world is to slightly change who you are so that you can re-see it from another perspective. So can I ask a cheeky question? I I may not answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to ask it anyway. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so, what are you changing from and into in this year? I don't think I'll describe what I'm changing into because that would jeopardise the whole <laughs> thing. I mean, apart from anything, I suppose I've I've moved from Devon to Bristol, which is a very big change for me. So I'm now living in a city, which I haven't ever really done before, and I've started using punctuation. You'll be interested to hear. <laughs> <laughs> which I haven't done for a long time. So that so there are there are small changes that actually mean you see the world differently, you know, to to actually manage a full stop for me is a is a big change of perspective. How does it feel using the full stop? How does it feel? It's really interestingly different because funnily enough it feels more fluid. I think when you don't use punctuation, you feel all the time like you're engraving things in a stone. It's got that sort of sculptural feel to the language. So I'm kind of checking myself so that it doesn't get too fluid because I think poems need to kind of flow backwards as well as forwards, if you know what I mean. And sometimes when there's when there's punctuation, you can just keep rippling on without noticing where you're going. Sometimes I leave a space before a full stop so that the full stop is actually almost a word in itself. Well, on that note of praising the full stop, I think it's a good point to conclude the interview. What do you think? Perfect. Yes, I think it's great. Thank you, Alice. Misfortune, I wish I could meet you underwater in your deep green room and flannel your bloodshot eyes and brush your dead hair. They say there is a flash of mercy concealed in your face folds if only a person has time to swim down and find it. There are soft chairs, no windows, no noise except the self-closing stone door, which I opened once and found myself in a chamber of options, a little sea cleft where the salmon drift and turn into humans. But fate is not fortune. I was not fated to find you there. Only the converging walls, the tilted floor. Kit Fan's recent poetry collection is as slow as possible. His debut novel, Diamond Hill, will be out from World Editions in 2021. Alice Oswald's book-length poem, Nobody, is out this month from W.W. W. Norton. You can read Kit Fan's essay on Nobody in the July-August 2020 issue of Poetry or online at poetrymagazine.org. The Poetry Magazine podcast is produced by Rachel James and the theme music comes from the Claudia Quintet. I want to take a moment to thank our listeners, you, for the continued support. If you're new to the podcast, I'm glad you found us. And if you've been listening since 2007, yes, you heard me correctly, that's 13 years. Thank you so much. We're taking a brief pause for the summer months, and we're excited to return with a new season of the show in the fall. Until then, be well, stay safe, and thanks for listening.